Let's pray before we begin our time. Oh God, help us and cause us to fix our gaze on you and find comfort in Christ. We pray it for his sake and for your name. Amen. Uh, Handouts. See Alex waving in the back. Yes, let me pass those out. For some of you, it looks like some of you already have them. Good deal. So you know those people that you already have, kind of, you immediately already have preconceived notions about them? When I was a freshman in college, I was much more boisterous and extroverted and outgoing than I am now, and that often had one of two effects on people. The first was that it really annoyed them. The second was that, I don't know, some people, they, they could deal with it, and They wanted to befriend me. You know, I think in retrospect that those who thought that I was obnoxious were justified in believing so. By God's grace, I've made great great strides. And, um, you know, I remember a good number of connections of my close friends would say that as they remembered me as I was a junior, senior in college, they used to reflect back and they would say, man, yeah, I used to hate this guy, Jeremy, but as I got to know him better, he wasn't too bad. It's easy to have preconceived notions about people whom we don't yet know. This streak actually comes to us from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent tells the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened. The serpent deceives the woman into believing that God is different than what he actually is or what he claims himself to be. As a culture today, I think we're very good at doing the same thing. You know, the secular culture used to cede the moral high ground to Christianity. Even if they thought that it was kind of antiquated or prudish, they would still say that, yeah, I mean, Christians are pretty moral people. But that has absolutely changed. This is captured well by famed scientist Richard Dawkins, who I think captures it from today's day and age. He writes, Do those people who hold up the Bible as an inspiration to moral rectitude have the slightest notion of what is actually written in it. Last week, we talked about whether we can trust the Bible or not. If you remember, we talked about various kind of ways that we can trust the Bible, logical reasons, historical reasons, factual reasons for trusting the Bible, but we didn't consider moral reasons to trust the Bible. Do we have good moral standing to believe that this word from God is true? Do we have good reason to believe that the God of the Bible, the author behind the Bible, is truly a good God? Are we right to assume that God is, in fact, an oppressor? That he uses his authority to directly punish others or to complicitly allow other human beings to put down the vulnerable? Well, tonight we are going to consider some particular moral claims lobbed at the God of the Bible and This will ultimately be on our way to answer that question of whether God is an oppressor or not. You know, there's a number of different topics that we could broach tonight within this subject, but I want to talk about three particular moral questions that people often put the Bible on trial for. Slavery, the inequality of women, and genocide. Light topics. I'm only briefly going to go into detail on each of these. But for more on, on them, you can see the resources listed on the back of your handout. We're going we're gonna to tackle these questions, but 
again, there's only so much we can sufficiently do in this time and space. And so I would encourage you to check out those resources on the back of your handout. So let's start by considering the first of those three moral problems, slavery. My aim tonight is to introduce us to these, but by the end, I want us to meditate on the willing oppression of Christ for us and what that means for us. So let's start with slavery. You can see it there is the first one on your handout. I wonder what comes to mind when you think of slavery. I think for us as Americans, the picture is pretty clear. We probably picture the transatlantic slave trade, hundreds of thousands of Africans being kidnapped against their will and trafficked across the Atlantic Ocean. Thousands of families ripped apart on our very shores. You know, in his autobiography, Frederick Douglass recounts his own experiences in slavery in these harrowing terms. He writes, Oh, why was I born a man of whom to make a brute? The glad ship is gone. She hides in the dim distance. I am left in the hottest hell of unending slavery. Oh, God, save me. God, deliver me. Let me be free. Is there any God? Why am I a slave? This is horrific. Slavery, as we think about it here in our country, is one of those ominous clouds that hangs over us and shadows our history as a nation. So when we read passages like Ephesians 6, 5, where Paul says that slaves are to obey your earthly masters, we're right to pause for a moment and wonder, okay, where's the discontinuity here? How could the Bible teach something like this? Does God give approval and ordain this heinous institution? That exact passage from Ephesians is what slave owners in the South would use to kind of give license to their enslavement of people like Frederick Douglass. So we consider this subject. I, I think it's important first for us to consider that sometimes the Bible doesn't say all that we hope it would say or in the exact way that we hope it would say it. But as Esau Macaulay, an insightful New Testament scholar, writes, the story of Christianity does not on every page legislate slavery out of existence. Nonetheless, the Christian narrative, our core theological principles, and our ethical imperatives from Scripture create a world in which slavery becomes unimaginable. So as we think about that claim, let's flip to Matthew chapter 19 real quick. Flipping your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew is the first gospel, so it's the first book of the New Testament. Coming right after Malachi. Here on the issue of divorce, the Pharisees are testing Jesus, and rather than explicitly addressing the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 24, Jesus actually goes back to the beginning. So look down there at chapter 19, verse 8. It says, He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, it was not so. The question for Jesus is not what does the Old Testament law allow or not allow, but what God intended. He wants to take them back to the heart of God's creational intent for his humans, for his creation, for his 
moral beings. In one sense, we must understand this principle when dealing with certain difficult passages of the Bible. Some passages in the Bible recognize that this world is broken and cursed, that man is sinful and corrupt, and that until Christ returns, things are not going to be as they should here on this earth. But until then, we need guides for attempting to limit the damage that we can do to one another. When we consider God's intent and when we read our Bibles theologically, we can be confident that the Bible clearly and unequivocally denounces and condemns anything other than the equal treatment of all humans. And when I say read our Bibles theologically, what I simply mean is that we need to read our Bibles understanding what the whole narrative of Scripture is teaching. What has God disclosed about himself? What can we know to be true of this word that he's given to us? And how then can we apply the Bible to those difficult passages? There's a reason that two different people, William Wilberforce, who was an abolitionist, on the grounds of the Bible, sought to free slavery, free slaves from slavery. And then others, like these heinous slave owners, would use the same Bible to give license to their slaveholding. How could these two people come to differing conclusions? Well, one was reading their Bible very poorly and not applying it as God intended, and the other was understanding the whole of what Scripture teaches about the sanctity of human life and applying it to these things. The ugly and unfortunate truth is that even many self-professing Christians defended the practice of slavery. This is obviously perhaps one of the darkest stains on the American church, but we cannot equate the actions of those self-professed Christians in Christianity itself. Christianity itself, marked by the teaching of Scripture, forbids man-stealing and lifelong servitude as Exodus 21, verse 16, and 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse 10 demonstrate. You know, another important point to clarify, we've been talking about this in the context of American kind of chattel slavery, where these slaves were seen as property, but that slavery was vastly different from the slavery of the first century Roman world. Slaves in Paul's day were actually paid a wage. They were often educated. And in fact, there are many slaves who could read and would read to their own masters because their masters were illiterate. They could gain sums of wealth and even own property. You know, one of the most important things to remember, too, is that this slavery was not based on skin color or ethnicity as the transatlantic slave trade was. But even then, Paul and the rest of the Bible don't necessarily commend this practice of slavery either. In 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul encourages slaves to gain their freedom if they can. In fact, the Christian ethic was radically different from the ancient Roman world, which was perfectly content to have inequality of vast proportions across social lines. The church, Christ's body, was marked by a vastly different social ethic a social ethic as captured by Paul in Galatians 3, that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Paul's letter to Philemon, he encourages Philemon not to view his slave Onesimus as property, but rather as a brother, as a family member. In fact, he says, don't even just receive him as a brother. Receive him, Paul says, as you would receive me. Paul, as an esteemed apostle, one who is known throughout the known world, he says to receive him as you would receive me. 
And this is just a, another application point on reading the Bible before we move on to our next point. The Bible must be read first in its original context before we can try to import our modern understanding to it. We do not live in a vacuum. There's endless cultural and social phenomenon that are happening in the world around us that are forcing us to think in certain ways and to assume certain things. And it filters everything that we do. And so I wonder, when you come to God's word, are you trying to understand it first and foremost in its original context? Or are you automatically seeing it through the lens of your modern setting and and cultural time? When we come to God's word, we must come with fresh eyes as best as we can, which is also why we need to read it with community. And then we can bring it into context of our modern times and apply it. Let's move on to that second point, the oppression of women. At first glance, you might think that the Bible is full of patriarchy. You see verses like, wives, submit to your husband, and you think, ah, there it is. That's exactly what I have a problem with. It has confirmed my suspicions. But how does the world's caricature of God and his words treatment of women fare with the Greco-Roman world in which the Bible is written? Well, in that world, women were seen as less valuable than men in a number of different ways. For one, female infanticide was rampant. And it was completely okay. Socially, in that world, if a family had a girl born to them, they could just throw her out. And no one would bat an eye. Men were often free to enjoy a great deal of sexual freedom and promiscuity while women were expected to be faithful. The God of the Bible, even as we talked about with slavery, sets forth a radical contrast to this ancient world. For God has created male and female in his own image, thus underscoring their equality in value, worth, and dignity. The person of Jesus Christ transcended the cultural taboos against women in the first century by talking one-on-one with them, by befriending them, by even traveling with them, by teaching them. The Apostle Paul at the end of Romans extends a number of different people, uh, extends greetings to a number of different people who helped him in his ministry. And nearly half the list there contain the names of women. Paul also pushes against the sexual freedom of the Greco-Roman world by insisting sexual fidelity fidelity in marriage between both men and women. Nearly two-thirds of the early Christian communities were composed with women. Romans criticized Christianity, actually, for this reason and claimed that it was a religion for women, which at this time was quite an insult. Minutius Felix, which, man, what a Roman name, Minutius Felix... (laughs) often ridiculed Christianity for pulling from, quote, Christianity pulled from the dregs of the populace, incredulous women with the instability natural to their sex. In the ancient world, Christianity was mocked, not for being too anti-woman, but for being too pro-woman. The irony should probably be pretty thick. But even if we concede all of this ground, we still need to reckon with the Bible's mention of women submitting to men. What does this mean? What does Paul mean by saying this? Again, this isn't the time for me to get into a lecture on the nature of gender roles in the church or outside the church in the home. There's many excellent resources out there for that. In fact, some of those resources listed on there. 
But again, we must remember that the Bible intends for men within the context of marriage to sacrificially love their wives, even unto the point of death, if necessary, in the same way that Christ loved and died for his bride, the church. Now that's sacrificial love. Any women in the ancient Greco-Roman world would have sought shelter under the wings of a man like this. The biblical notion of submission and authority leaves no room for abuse or a purely patriarchal husband. Difference in role does not equal difference in value or worth. And regarding submission as an entirely negative quality, disregards Jesus' own submission to the Father, as Philippians 2 talks about. To believe that the God of the Bible is a, some sort of like misogynistic ogre, that cuts against the grain of all of the teaching of Scripture. Again, more could be said, but I'd encourage you to check out some of those resources. Feel free to shoot me any questions. Let's move on to that final topic, genocide. So we talked in early on in our survey of the Bible about how sometimes you land in the book of Leviticus and that's where your reading plans go to die. But if you power through and make it out of Leviticus, you land in Deuteronomy and then you come across Deuteronomy 20 and it says that in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to complete destruction. And so here we come to another very precarious passage and we wonder, how can we reckon with a passage like this? Well, one of the first things we must remember is that all people, after Adam's sin, all people deserve God's just punishment against them for their sin. You know, there may be some other questions that arise from that. Well, who is deserving and who's undeserving? How does God decide who's deserving and who's undeserving? Next week, we're actually going to consider the question can a loving God send people to hell? So that's a, that's a huge question, a kind of question that we have to consider as Christians and particularly for those who are maybe skeptical of things of the Christian faith. So we'll be considering that question next week. We would encourage you to come back. But we must remember that all people deserve God's just punishment against them for their sin. And suffice it to say for now that we should not be surprised that the Lord is pouring forth his wrath upon the people like the Canaanites. After all, this is a wicked, wicked people who had rejected God. They engaged in temple sex and adultery. I don't even know what that is, but it sounds weird and wicked. They engaged in bestiality. I do know what that is, but I wish that I didn't know what that is. They even murdered their own children as sacrifices to their gods. In the words of Michael Kruger, he writes that rather than being surprised that God will finally judge people for their sins, even in great numbers, perhaps we should be shocked that he waits so long to do it. Rather than being surprised that God will finally judge people for their sins, perhaps we should be shocked that he waits so long to do it. Every one of us is alive and breathing solely because of God's incredible patience and grace. And Israel is not intrinsically better than the nations either. God painfully reminds them of this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. He says that it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. In other words, he's saying, it's not because of anything inherent in you that I chose you. 
for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's destruction of certain people groups in the Old Testament has nothing to do with their ethnicity, as modern genocides do. It is solely a measure of God's wrath against sin in a fulfillment of his promise to Abram and his descendants to occupy the land of their sojournings. God's judgment is just, even if we can't fully understand it. There's a reason that the prophet Isaiah says that of the Lord, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we've briefly considered these three subjects trying to ask the question, is, is the God of the Bible an oppressor? But I want to shift tones for the remainder of our time and flip the question back on you, to flip the question back on us. Rather than, is the God of the Bible an oppressor? I want us to think, am, am I an oppressor? Am I an oppressor? I'm sure some of you in this room have seen the Passion of the Christ, that Mel Gibson movie. It documents those painful last few hours of Jesus' life and documents them in very gruesome and gory detail. The metal cat of nine tails with spikes wraps around his body and rips his flesh away. The crown of thorns burrows deep into his brow, leaving a crimson trail of blood to stream down his face. Like watching a stake being driven into the ground, we see the metal spikes pounded into his hands and his feet. The soldiers and crowds mock him like an inhumane piece of property. He's naked and flaunted before them for their entertainment. I'm sure as you watch this, or even as you think of Jesus' passion on the cross, you probably feel disgusted. You maybe feel angry or maybe even a bit nauseous. But you probably also feel sad. You feel compassion for this Jesus who, a completely innocent man, is being put through this punishment. Just as you feel the tears well up in your eyes like raindrops on a window that are about to, to fall down your face, you remember those words from Luke 23, 28, where Jesus on the cross says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. It's an interesting thing that Jesus says as he's there on the cross. You know, we like feeling sad for Jesus. We can treat it a little bit like penance, like we're at the arcade stacking up all these tickets ready to cash them in for the prize. If only I can show enough emotion, then... God will accept me. But Jesus says, weep not for me. Weep for yourselves. Weep not for me, for I am not a hapless victim. Weep not for me. I chose to be here of my own accord in your place. Weep not for me. Come Sunday, I will be a resurrecting king. Weep not for me. I have perfectly followed God's will. 
I have obeyed him in ways that you rejected him. Weep only for yourselves. God's wrath will soon visit those who stood by as those in authority and power killed me. Weep only for yourselves. God will soon crush all who have committed injustice against me and against my people. Weep only for yourselves. For on your own, your sin is going to be too much for you to bear. And outside of me, you're not going to be able to withstand it. Weep for yourselves, for I am the object of your own oppression. When we think about that question, am I an oppressor? The answer is a resounding yes. And one of the worst kind. The one whose sins held a sinless savior to that cross. I wonder for any who want to lobby moral claims against God, if they even realize necessarily what they're asking for. They want some form of justice to be upheld. But in asking for that justice and seeking for that justice to come, they're bringing justice down on upon themselves. Upon all whose sins brought God's wrath to be poured out on an innocent and righteous man. There's no escaping your sin. The only escape for your sin is by believing in the one who escaped death for you, the one who's willing obedience and willing love to go for, to the cross in your place, to die, to face God's full cup of wrath, but who escaped death by being raised from death. The only escape is by finding refuge in him, by confessing this truth and by believing that you can indeed find refuge for your sins. That in true contrition, in true belief that weeping for yourself because you recognize that there's nothing you can bring to God to save you, that then you'll be saved as I was reflecting on the necessity and even just the, the simplicity of this response that God requires of us. I thought of the thief on the cross from Luke 23. It might be helpful for us to turn there. Luke chapter 23. If you look down at verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you notice that threefold response of the thief there on the cross? He first recognizes that he and the thief to his left are on those crosses justly, that they deserve to be there, that they're receiving their due. That's us. We are those who, in our sin, are due that punishment. Second, he confesses that Jesus is the only righteous one. He has nothing, nothing to gain in worldly terms by saying this. In fact, he doesn't even first start by asking for God to have mercy on him. Instead, he just simply recognizes that Jesus is the righteous one. He recognizes his own sin, the own justice that's due for his sin. And then he looks to Jesus and says, this man is actually righteous. He does not deserve to be here. But then what's that third movement? He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's faith. That's him turning from himself and believing with confidence that this man is righteous and that through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that he is God and that he's capable of saving even a sinner such as himself. This is the threefold profession of every Christian. And I hope that it's your profession because apart from it, you will receive the justice due to all who seek refuge outside of God. For those of you who feel beat down by this world or who feel saddened by the state of social ills, think of things like the ever-growing pornography industry that profits off the backs of women and sex slaves, the endless cycles of war and humanitarian crises. Know that God is coming one day to judge. He will destroy all evildoers. He will dismantle all human perceived notions and structures of power used to oppress others. And though judgment will be terrifying for those who are on the wrong side of it, it will be sweet for those who find their shelter in the rock that is Christ. Are you confident that when Christ's judgment comes, that you'll be spared? 
What's the object of that confidence? Is it in your works or is it wholly on that rock of salvation, the Lord Jesus himself? The one whose righteousness you bear by faith. Let's pray. Oh, Father, when we think of our own sinfulness, God, we're just reminded of how rebellious we are and how somber the reality is of life apart from you. God, we, we lament the life in this fallen world. There are too many ills for us to fathom There's so much that we long to be set right, O oh God. So we ask that you come quickly, that you restore all things, that you enact justice fully and finally. And God, as we're still here, as you patiently wait and endure in your mercy, cause us to turn to you and instill in those who are your children, the urgency of proclaiming the good news that others can find shelter under your wings. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.